with underwriting, there's a lot of different levers that can be pulled into determining what price point that you're able to buy it at. There's a lot of just different moving parts. And so there's sort of an art to underwriting, whereas like with engineering, it is a little bit more linear. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. All right. So for today's episode, we're here with Taylor Koo. Today's show is sponsored by Fortress Capital, a private equity company that I founded to help physicians build passive income through commercial real estate. Being a physician is a high stress job and building passive income streams is key to not feeling trapped in that job. So build your financial fortress with Fortress Capital. All right, let's get started with Taylor. So Taylor began your career as an engineer. Tell us a little bit more about your background. Yeah. So how I got into commercial real estate definitely took a number of different career paths. So by trade, I was actually, I studied mechanical engineering over at Loyola Marymount University. And right out of college, I started building restaurants. Surprisingly, there were Asian restaurants in Northern California and Southern California. And it came to a point where COVID happened and we ended up losing all of our jobs. Now, the original reasoning as to why I wanted to at least get into construction is because I wanted to get into real estate. And I think throughout the time, and especially when COVID happened, it was sort of by divine intervention of me losing my job. Because at the end of the day, I really just didn't enjoy it. But I still love just the commercial real estate aspect, particularly within multifamily. And so when COVID happened, I actually was living at my mom's house and I didn't know anybody in the industry. I didn't have any experience at all. And so I actually did exactly what we're doing right now is I actually started a podcast just as a way to network with other industry professionals because no one would talk to me for an hour of their time if I just asked. And it was just a nice excuse just to use that as my coaching session in exchange for just social media graphics and giving them a platform to share their message. And so after doing that for about eight months to a year, I ended up finding a job with PassiveInvesting.com and now I do investor relationship with them for about a year and a half. And so I've been doing that. This is what I do full-time now in terms of just raising capital being the main point of contact for our investor base. But it definitely went through a lot of trials and tribulations beforehand. And there's construction, engineering, and I was a professional hip-hop dancer <laughs> beforehand too. So it's a number of different paths. Yeah, I see here that you're on Jimmy Kimmel. Yes, I was on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Yeah, that was the pinnacle. Like when I was on the show, I thought I made it. Like this is the launch of my career. And what's interesting about that though is that was sort of the catalyst of me going towards entrepreneurship. So when I did that gig, I was actually the only person that wasn't represented by an agent. And because it wasn't represented by an agent, the choreographer actually ended up just pocketing the money and I just didn't get paid. So I guess there is that if you're going to be a performer, you actually do need an agent. Yeah, okay. <laughs> definitely get an agent and definitely make sure everything is in writing, especially like at that stage and at that level, if it could happen on big stage, like Jimmy Come Alive, I knew it could happen anywhere. And also it really just was for such a small amount of money. I was just like, ah, this is fun, but I, if I want to raise a family and do great things, I just got to find something else. Okay. So what took you, was that while you were in college? Was that after college? That was senior year while I was in college. And then okay. after college is when I dove into construction. 
So maybe it, it looks like a great thing to be a professional dancer, but a little tougher to turn it into a career. Oh yeah, no, a hundred percent. And then even the longevity of it, I can talk about the dance industry for an hour, but the longevity of it is by the time you reach like 25 to 30 years old, you're already getting replaced by another 18 year old kid that can do exactly what you can do just a little bit better. So that's interesting because I started out in the ski industry when I was in my 20s. And there was a point where it was the same thing where I said, man, if I'm going to ever have a family and actually support anybody besides me, I need to go down a different road. Yeah. Were you an instructor or were you trying to be professional as it is? I I was an instructor. Uh, I was a ski school director for a few years. And it was kind of after that, decided it was time to go back to school. And when I went to medical school, so... Yeah, very similar. I mean, different industries, but very similar, I guess, like origin story and cadence to just where we are now and even having this conversation now. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting combination of the artistic side with the dance and then engineering. Do you find that often? To me, it seems like they're kind of worlds apart. They are worlds apart because, I mean, especially with engineers, I mean, they're very analytical trying to find just the solution. Whereas like with dance, it's very expressive and free flowing where they could have a number of different solutions. So I guess in a way, they sort of come hand in hand and complement each other just because they're so opposite, but definitely a little bit different. But surprisingly, though, with dance and even engineering, I was able to learn a lot of transferable skills that I had within those two industries. And then even bring that into commercial real estate, which you wouldn't think like if you were going to just compare apples to oranges, you wouldn't think there would be any transferable skills there. Yeah. So let's dig into that a little deeper. What are the transferable skills you find yourself using now in commercial real estate that came out of your background? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So with dance, it was more of a mindset and philosophy behind dance and how I was able to transfer that into commercial real estate. It's not like you dance to cap rates or (laughs) or NOIs or financial statements or anything like that. But whenever you do go into a dance class, it's always something new. You're never understanding the entire choreography and you might learn like a minute piece, which is a very long time in the dance industry in about 30 minutes. And you sort of have to gain an understanding first before you can actually use the movements. And so every single class sort of just becomes a challenge of just stepping outside of your comfort zone and then eventually getting it by the end of the class. There's always just this constant challenge and looking at yourself in the mirror because you're in a dance studio. I mean, there's mirrors everywhere of just challenging yourself and pushing yourself to just be uncomfortable, but then really just trying to adapt what the choreographer or teacher is teaching you because it's always going to be different. No teacher teaches the same. And so with dance, it really got me to understand myself and then also just the people around me just a little bit more before I guess I made my own decisions and realized like what I like to do and started choreographing for myself. right? And so when I was jumping into commercial real estate, I took that same concept. I started to talk through a lot of just different industry operators and understanding where their philosophy and investment thesis was at. I mean, there's so many different times where I didn't understand any of the terminology. I couldn't figure out or even understand the language of and why they're making these certain decisions. But after just talking to them time and time and time again, and just staying consistent with it, it starts to click. You start to become in rhythm, in motion, and then you start to create your own investment thesis. The two journeys are very much so in parallel. And then with engineering, I mean, you come from an analytical background 
you're essentially vetting a business. Granted, it's a little bit different. You're not solving triple integrals on a financial, but at least you can leverage some of your Excel, I guess, abilities, but then also being able to relate to other engineers as well in terms of just how they think. Because I mean, a number of engineers invest in commercial real estate. They like the idea of investing. They just have a different approach to it. So different, but still transferable. Okay. You obviously were an expert at dance and you were an expert doing your design work as an engineer. And then what did it take as you stepped over into real estate? I, don't know, I guess from a mindset, like you had to make a big shift there. I know you were forced to maybe because of COVID, but what was that like? Yeah, honestly, it sucked because it's such a new territory and there's a lot of self-doubt that comes within jumping into commercial real estate. With residential real estate and buying and flipping homes, the barrier to entry is a little bit lower and you could arguably get a deal a lot quicker than what you could for commercial real estate, a year, two years, if not even more until that first deal actually comes into play, whether you're raising for it, underwriting for it, you know, you actually go under contract. So it's a lot of it was just battling a a lot of your own self-limiting beliefs. And then and I was battling my own self-limiting beliefs, thinking that, hey, I don't have a network. Hey, I'm too young. Hey, I don't have capital, which all of them were true <laughs> to that standpoint. But the one thing that really kept me going was just the idea of expanding my network and then finding people that have absolute concrete evidence that this does work. I mean, the confidence started to build very little overnight, but then all of a sudden you get hockey sticks up where you just start to understand all the different levers that are being pulled, how to raise capital, how these deals are being underwritten. It's just a very slow burn until it actually clicks. Yeah. I mean, that was just a long-winded answer of saying, I don't think I would have had the support and belief to continue to keep going, even as strong-willed and strong-minded that I was, unless I was able to expand my network with people that have actually done what I was able to do or what I wanted to do. I guess in my mindset, I see people who are analytical like engineers and I see them more doing underwriting or building deals or working in the building spot. And you ended up in investor relations. How did that transition happen? Yeah, it was sort of a natural transition because even though I was analytical, I think it came to a point where I just didn't really enjoy that side of it. Like I kept under trying like underwriting deals and trying to make the deal work, but I've realized and I took into account just like my own personal strengths of what I enjoy, what I don't enjoy. And I just realized that I really didn't enjoy. I felt like I just had a natural cadence to do investor relations. And I just started to enjoy it a lot more as I was podcasting. And I don't think I would have figured it out unless I tried underwriting. Okay. So if somebody's new and listening for the first time and just learning more and this term underwriting, most of us haven't heard a lot, or maybe you go to the bank to get a loan and they're saying, oh, we'll send it to the underwriter which is some mysterious black box. What's your definition if you're explaining to somebody what underwriting is? Yeah. So you are essentially taking a look at the financials and then determining at what price you can buy the deal at. And this is taking into account the, the operating income, the expenses, then also the debt service that you're going to be able to put onto the deal. And I mean, I think this was the biggest challenge that I had when I was underwriting in comparison to engineering is just because with engineering, it's, it's sort of a linear process just to come with one specific result. Whereas with underwriting, there's a lot of different levers that can be pulled into determining what price point that you're able to buy it at. There's a lot of just different moving parts. And so there's sort of an art to 
underwriting, whereas like with engineering, it is a little bit more linear. So long-winded answer just to say you get to evaluate a deal and decide what price point you want to buy it at. Okay. So doing the math to decide if the numbers work and Mm -hmm. what kind of returns will come out of a deal. So for a lot of people, this is an interesting thing that they look at it. And I think for docs, and they're like, well, how do you know? And maybe that's the art of underwriting is it's all projections. It's not a set in stone. And you're kind of looking at a worst case scenario and a best case scenario. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that took me a while to understand is that a lot of these are guesstimates. I mean, I actually haven't even seen a deal that is exactly what they put on their projections in their pro forma. It's very fluid. It's going to be under, it's going to be over, but it's never going to be exactly the same. So it's the closest guess that you can get to. So what do you tell? So if you're talking to somebody in your job doing investor relations and they want guarantees or they want to know how exact this whole process is, what do you tell them? Yeah. What's very interesting about that question is that question has a lot of different nuances to what they're actually asking. And so something that I've learned in this book called Pitch Anything. Have you read Pitch Anything by chance? I think I did at some point. Okay. Yeah, no worries. So it's the idea that the brain processes information in a very particular order. And so the first thing that when you are talking to someone, they have to essentially know if they can trust you. So do they trust you? Are you a good person? Are you actually competent? And so when people go into a call or go into hey, I just want to know the numbers. Do these numbers actually work? It's hard to build that relationship because now if you just tell them the numbers, oh, it's 7% cash on cash return. This is a 15% IRR. They're not going to fully understand the background of how you got to that point because they're still in the first part of the brain just trying to determine if they trust what you're saying that you're going to be doing and if you're a competent person. And so when someone does go and sort of asks about this idea of, is this a guarantee? I mean, I even pull back and I say something along, I answer their question, right? I mean, nothing in an investment is considered a guarantee. And we have this thing called the preferred return, which is the closest thing that you can get to a guarantee. But leading up to that question, though, I would want to know more about them their goals, and even if our opportunities are going to align with what they're looking for. But to, yeah, to address the guarantee question, though, there's no such thing as a guarantee. And in investments, the closest thing that you can get to a guarantee is the preferred return, which is the alignment of interest between the passive investors and the general partners, meaning that you have to hit a specific return. Typically, it's 7% preferred return, 8% preferred return before the partners can participate in profits from the asset. So that's basically saying that the first 8% of profit goes to the investors before the operators get anything. Exactly. Okay. When somebody calls you for the first time, what are their typical questions? And I guess that depends on where they are in their journey. I mean, how often do you talk to somebody who looked online, they heard about passive investing and did a Google search and they got passiveinvesting.com and they call you? <laughs> Honestly, it's actually a lot more frequent than you would think. Honestly, at this point right now, I've probably had over 400 investor calls since I've started. And they typically have the same common questions over and over and over again. And I would say even the experienced people when we first hop onto a call. And now I'm thinking about it and reflecting on the reason as to why they're the same questions is because I believe that I take control of the call a little bit early on because I want to know more about who I'm talking to. Because the last thing that I would want is if I am talking to somebody, turns out that they're an operator themselves, but I'm explaining what a cap rate is to them. I mean, it just doesn't flow. And so whenever I do 
start my calls, I ask them about themselves. Since our first time chatting, I'd actually love if you can kick off our call. So let me know a little bit more about yourself, what you do work-wise, real estate investing experience and investment goals. Then I can cater the conversation based on what they were saying, right? And so like for somebody that is new, I mean, they would talk, they would ask about track record. They would ask about how long they're going to be in the deal. They were going to ask about, have you ever not performed on a deal and how did you overcome that? But I would say those are the three common most questions. Okay. If somebody's completely new to this and they're like, I've always wondered about investing in apartment buildings or an office building or a strip mall, but I have no idea. What would you tell them are the most important things for them to start learning about? Yeah. So if the most important things for them to start learning about, and they are just finding out about syndications, the biggest aspect I would focus on is how to vet an operator. And I would even say underwriting if you can. I mean, underwriting does take a little bit of time. At the end of the day, vetting an operator and being able to vet the deal is crucial because the operator is going to be the foundation behind running the deal. I mean, numbers are just marketing material, but the actual execution of it is what's really important. So understanding if that person has a business background, understanding how they're modeling their underwriting, that is extremely important to just how they get to their conclusions. But if you're looking for resources, there's a number of different resources that I think would be super beneficial if you are just starting out. The Hands-Off Investor by Brian Burke is one of the best books out there. And it deals with, I mean, of course, syndications and how to vet a deal, how to analyze a deal and how you can come up with your own thesis. The next book I would say is Best Ever Apartment Syndication Book. That's primarily on multifamily, but they structure their deal. You can sort of just get an idea of all the ins and outs from a syndication standpoint, whether you're in multifamily, office, retail, et cetera. And honestly, I guess even if you are starting out and wanting to learn about it, I would just try and hop on a call with other people that are doing it. For people like us, if somebody is looking to learn, you want to know more about what they're doing. And it's not even going to be more of just a, a sales call, but it's really just like a resource call. Because when somebody is starting out fresh, and I've said this on a call multiple times, make sure you understand the person that you're talking to just because the nature of these deals are for five years. I mean, it's almost like a marriage. The nature of these deals are a liquid. And so you want to go into it slow. You don't want to rush into it. There's no rush to this whole syndication process. Take your time and learning and everyone has a different risk tolerance, but just take into account how fast you want to get into it. Some people get in a lot faster by the first Google search. Some people take about a year or two before they do it. Yeah. The longer term is different in today's world. I found that to be a positive because I think I was one of those people that the amount of stress I caused myself watching the stock market go up and down and be like, oh, I should be getting in. I should be getting out. And then looking back and forth, all the Warren Buffett stuff about most people are selling when they should be buying. And the nice thing about syndications is once you're in there, there's not an opportunity to just jump out. And so you got to do your homework on the front side, make sure you trust who you're investing with. 100% agree. The learning part. So you said you just jump on a call because I took a course and there's a lot of courses out there and you can spend money, but it's interesting. I think if you just start calling people, you can learn a lot of the same stuff and seeing if the stories align or if they don't align, but you'll start hearing the same things over and over again. Anybody who's here talking to investors does is talks to investors and so jump on a call. Give somebody a call. So how did yeah. you end up with PassiveInvesting.com? Yeah. So with PassiveInvesting.com, long story short, I actually just applied. 
Well, so according to my director, there was about 300 applicants for the job that had a way better resumes and LinkedIn profiles than me and a way better backgrounds. And my boss at the time even said that they had people that came from Harvard or Yale that applied to this position. But the main difference that they saw when hiring me was they didn't want to detrain somebody because they a lot of them came from an institutional background. They felt it was more work to detrain somebody and then retrain somebody instead of just training somebody just just good enough in order for them to create the products that they want. And so, I mean, I essentially just went through the interview process and sort of just applied all the knowledge that I had through the podcast, through networking, and just went for it and it just ended up working out. Was there anything that made you choose? That is where you applied. There's lots of different syndicators you could have done. Yeah, that's a good question. So the interesting thing with PassiveInvesting.com is, at least like within my network, the big player that you sort of heard through the grapevine. So I did work with another firm on a very, very small scale that they were just getting started doing a lot of just investor relations and marketing for about a month before I joined PassiveInvesting.com. And I mean, I wasn't full-time. I was doing just part-time stuff. I was still working some part-time job that I had at the time. And so a lot of what they were doing was trying to model it after PassiveInvesting.com. At least like for me, I knew that they were a big player because they had the social proof behind it. And I was very curious to know, especially just on that level, how they were operating these deals, how they were able to raise so much capital and, and partner up with just several different investors. And especially coming from Dan, who was just one of the managing partners. I mean, he got to start as a chiropractor, right? And seeing just how his transition. And so a lot of it was just from a learning standpoint of how they got started to trying to understand all the systems that they had to get to where they were. One of my favorite books, The Who, Not How. The who the syndicator is and their, I guess, moral composition is as important as anything because any deal can go bad. I like to be on the same in the game with somebody who's going to try and do the right thing. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I honestly think that the only way you're going to be able to understand that is if you do hop on a call with them, start interacting with them and seeing if they are aligned with your moral compass, because they, I mean, they have to pass the gut check too at the end of the day. Yeah. And sometimes it's multiple calls and it's okay to call somebody several times and talk to several people. It's like, if you're investing, it's your money to invest. I would encourage people to interview multiple operators and learn as much as you can before you decide where you want to go. Because a good relationship with a syndicator often and will go on multiple deals over many, many years. Yeah. And I love the fact that you said that too, just because I feel like you can tell when the conversation is transactional. If they're really learning about you and wanting to help and wanting to build wealth alongside you, they will learn more about you, your goals, and not even just from a financial standpoint, but just even understanding their backgrounds, their family. Those small little details go a long way. Going back to the original question of what made me choose PassiveInvesting.com. This was just a huge cherry on top. I was listening to their webinars and one of the first things that they say is they bring up family. Like I am a father of three, I have a dog, and this is just down the line as they're introducing themselves. And I found that really interesting for them to say that just because one, it lets them know that they're people, but then also two, they say it because they also understand that families are part of the investment journey as well. Like they're also part of the sacrifice for making these investments and making sure that they're going to be okay later on. And so even when I'm hosting investor dinners and Dan shows up, you see him bring his kids. There's just a huge involvement and community standpoint that I think I was just really baffled behind and just speechless just because it was such a different experience. I mean, some of the other operators I was talking to. 
So thank you for Taylor for coming on the show and sharing his journey into commercial real estate with us as that's what's going on with a lot of docs is looking for a way to journey into a new way of building passive income. So thank you. Please stop and leave a review for the show. Those reviews really help us. People know what you like and what you don't like so we can give you more of what you like. Thank you and we'll see you next time. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you got value from this episode, you know other surgeons are hungry to become job optional, and you can help them by sharing this content today. I'd also love to serve you better, so I wanted to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you take a moment and leave an honest written review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help you. Schedule a call and we can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.